Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Jim Oaks. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. And I'm here in your office, and I'm looking around and seeing the most tremendous collection of books on, I was going to say Lincoln, but it's uh, America from leading up to the Civil War and the Civil War, but I guess from from um, the Constitution, from the, what's your what's your specialty? How would you describe it? Oh, I guess from the Revolution to the Civil War. To the end of the Civil War, right? And regular listeners to this podcast know that I've slowly over time been talking more about how I've been inspired by abolition and motivated uh, by uh, Lincoln. Is be uh, people have heard me talking more and more about Lincoln, and you've written a lot of books on Lincoln and uh, abolition, the Civil War, and also Manisha Sinha was a past guest. And you are you friends with her? Yeah, with yeah, they're, they're good friends. Yeah. And she was a teacher of mine in, in college. And I'm going to share what brought me to you. Okay. And sorry, I don't know if this is bad podcasting technique, but it's going to be a bit about myself. But it's it's some stuff I haven't shared before. Okay. That over the years, as I've done more work on sustainability, I've I've drawn parallels. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of depth this time. With and I don't want to. I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying here. So I'll say it very carefully. But though people hear it differently than I've said, but. Um, that is, from a systemic perspective, if you look at the system underlying slavery and the system underlying pollution, and this is not to say compare pollution and slavery, but to compare the underlying systems, there's some commonalities. And over the years, that's led me to uh, the big th one big thing was in reading Adam Hochschild's book, Bury the Chains, about British abolition uh, that took in a couple generations – a, few, a relatively small number of people took an institution that had existed since before history, slavery, and in a short period of time changed ultimately, I mean, in the empire, the British Empire, and then ultimately the, the world to view something that was viewed as good by many people and inevitable and something that if we tried to get rid of, everything would collapse. And they changed it to where today, I don't think you can find many people who are saying, let's restore slavery. It exists today, but it's not legal, I think, anywhere, although it took well into the 20th century for that to be universal. And then, so I kept learning more, and, and so abolitionists and abolitionism became a big motivation for me, a big um, uh, role models for me. And I thought for a while, I looked at British abolitionism, they outlawed slave trade in 1807 and the slavery in the empire in 1833. And we had our civil war in 1860. So I thought, well, they started it. And then I learned, well, when I, there's been my personal journey of polluting less and unplugging my apartment from the electric grid over the summer led to a lot more reading, including these really long books on Abraham Lincoln. Because somehow they, he seems to get people to write 600 plus page books. <laughs> 2,000 page books. <laughs> oh, I haven't gotten to that one. So there was... Um, Lincoln by David Donald and uh, Team of Rival Rivals by uh, Doris Kearns. And actually, then I finally read Manisha Sinha's book, Don't Tell Her, but I read it after having her on the podcast. <laughs> the Slave's uh, Cause? The Slave's Cause, yeah. And um, Very good book. Yes. It's, yeah. And so I started learning about American prohibition, uh, abolition, also prohibition, but that's another story. And I started learning more and more about Lincoln and the 13th Amendment and its passage. And I had this idea that I've shared a bit that when I first had it, I thought this is crazy. I shouldn't really think about it that much. But I had this idea of a parallel to the 13th Amendment. And this would be an amendment, a constitutional amendment banning pollution. And it sounds, on the, on the face of it, it sounds crazy because how do you define pollution? Uh, how do you enforce it? We don't want another prohibition. And the big thing is, how do you, how'd you get something like that passed? I mean, everyone's clean air, but not many people want to, I mean, flying pollutes. And if your mom is on the opposite coast and you want to go visit her, no one wants to give up that. And yet, a lot of people didn't want to give up slavery either. I mean, we have a much more, we, we view it with clarity that at the time it was much more nuanced. Right. So I've been learning more and more about slavery, abolition, and now especially Lincoln and the passage of the 13th Amendment. All that led to one day I'm in a bookstore and I see this title 
the crooked road to abolition, okay. crooked path. I could have just looked up and you have a copy, a couple of copies there. And I was like, that's interesting. And Manisha's name is on the, on the, on the cover, on the back. I think it was on the back. We, yeah, you can go and check. And maybe it's, yeah. okay. Is it on there? Anyway, she blurbed it. Yeah. She might be blurbing it. Inside. Maybe it was online. Okay. In any case, chapter six is on the 13th Amendment, where it came from and how it passed. Okay, so it's in the, in, on page two. <laughs> of the paperback. Or in, yeah, the inside <laughs> of the cover. Uh, yeah. And, uh, oh, and then, and then you were on stage with her um, in, in Princeton. Yes. And recently. that was like a couple days later, just by chance. And that was recently. Yeah. And uh, although I understand you, you taught at Princeton for a while. Yes, that was my first job. And uh, so now I'm starting to think, the things about how to define pollution, that's challenging. But the more I think about it, the more things start falling into place. Prohibition, we don't want another prohibition. That starts falling into place too. I mean, you can make gin in your bathtub to get fossil fuels out of the ground. You have to... You have to survey, you have to, you, you have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars and the better part of a decade to put something, you know, you can't hide that. Right. Um, but the passage of it, that leads me to Lincoln and it leads me to, to you. And that chap, so at first I thought, I had this very simple view of it, that uh, the Civil War begins, it's clear, or up to the Civil War, there's been lots of attempts at, at, at the local, federal, state level to try to legislate. It's not working. Um, judicial interpretations, the Dred Scott decision is a disaster. It's, it's moved in the opposite direction. It's not the Emancipation Proclamation is a wartime measure. Who knows if it, it frees the current slaves in some states, but not all. And at the end of the war, maybe they can just repopulate, rebuy some new slaves. And, and so I thought, it must have hit Lincoln to have a constitutional amendment and the other things didn't work as difficult as it would be for it to pass. It must have been, it would be very difficult, but he must have decided I must do it. And he did. Now that, then I read your book and I realized, oh my God, it's much more intense. It's much more nuanced and complex. Uh, you start that chapter with Stanton, Henry Stanton in 1839. Right. And I'm not sure if that, I think Manisha, I think, traced something to 1827 of the first mention of the idea of an, an, an amendment. That's a long time earlier. Right. Then there was all sorts of things that happened. And also just there's, it reminded me of the scene in the movie, Daniel Day-Lewis, where he goes, I'm the president of the United States of America, clothed something like with immense power to get the votes. And I feel like that's what he did. But he also had, Anyway, there's much more to it than I imagined. So that simple view was nice, but actually it's much more interesting to, to me to find out what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Sorry for the long introduction, <laughs> That's fine. but I wanted to bring them and you up to the listeners and you up to speed of where I'm coming from, fine. because I believe that, and there are people out there pushing for a constitutional amendment, guaranteeing the right to a clean environment. And that traces at least back to Gaylord Nelson, who began the first Earth Day, and whose daughter Tia Nelson has been on the podcast, and she supports this. And um, they're coming from a legal, political background, and I'm coming from a leadership background. And uh, I just had on the podcast a, a, a constitutional scholar and a um, an environmental uh, a constitutional scholar and lawyer and environmental lawyer at Cardozo. And he pointed out that the 13th Amendment is like nothing else in the Constitution. Everything else says what the government can't do, can't abridge the right to free speech, can't. But this is like out there, apparently, from a legal perspective. It says there shall be no slavery uh, or dented servitude except under certain conditions. And of course, many today, as you pointed out before we started recording, are saying that it exists much more than people think. But I'm coming from a leadership perspective. Something worked on something similar before that could work today. Mm -hmm. And oh, and then another thing, you also have spoken about the 1619 Project and in ways that are opening me up to talking about slavery uh, 
because I've, I've been kind of afraid to talk about it. The people I talk to who are friends say, you know, you can talk to me about this, but careful what you say in public because people get canceled over this and things like that. So that motivated me to share a lot of this. What I just shared goes back not quite three years in evolution for me, but I'm, I'm just starting to share some of the stuff for the first time. Hmm. I kind of want to, I guess I should ask about, how did you come to your, let's see, how many, you've written how many books on, how many books have you written? I think six. Six books. And two of them have won the Lincoln Prize. Mm -hmm. And I heard you introduced by someone else saying, I think you're going to win a third for Crooked Path. I don't want to jinx you. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> it didn't happen. It's all right. Oh, it's, uh, oh, well. Uh, sorry, I didn't mess, I, mean, I hope I didn't mess it no, up. No, 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 that's all right. <laughs> Do I read Deep Passion on your side? Yes. I, I never thought of it that way, but I have been told that if I, after I've given a public talk, that people will come up to me and say, you're very passionate mm -hmm. in the way I talk about these issues. So I guess it's, I guess I'm passionate. <laughs> I guess it's coming through. And is it, know? is it learning about the past? Is it, is it something about America or something about Lincoln or something about slavery or abolition, all these things? Yeah, all of those things. I mean, slavery is a pretty, uh, morally impassioned subject to write about. It was before I wrote about anti-slavery. wrote two books on slavery. That's where I started. And I persuaded myself that I had figured out why the slaveholders seceded from the Union, what they thought they were doing, what they thought they were protecting, but I didn't understand why the Northerners didn't just say, go, you know? So I was, I wanted to know why, why, why that happened. Because if the Northerners had just said, go ahead, leave the Union, get out, we don't want you, you know, the history of the United States would be very different. And so I wanted to understand that refusal to let them go over the issue of slavery. So that's been my concern and my passion for the last 15 or more years, try to figure out. But more than that, uh, why? It's not just not letting them go. It's how did, how did they get this done? It's like ultimately it's the 13th Amendment, but there's a whole lot of stuff up to the 13th Amendment that they did, you know, and how, how did they... You know, it's it's true. The Thirteenth Amendment is different because it's the only amendment that actually wipes out an entire social structure. Mm. You know, it's as though imagine a Thirteenth Amendment that said uh, there shall be neither patriarchy nor marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's inconceivable, right? But and what the world would look like if we did that? How different it would be, or or there shall be not neither wage labor nor you know child labor or something like that you know there's no other amendment that does anything like that and takes uh, an ancient ancient social institution that it's not so much that people thought was good but thought was just normal inevitable you know it's an acceptable part of the way societies organize themselves yeah, you capture someone in war, you can kill them or you can make them a slave. It's, it sounds... Yeah, well, that's one of the... That, it's interesting you said that because that's one of the big questions for me. Um, I started out as a slavery historian. And one of the things you learn pretty early on when you study the history of slavery, not just in the United States, but everywhere, is that the single largest source of slaves over time, over the entire history of the world, is war. War generally results, the relationship between war and slavery generally is a relationship of wars result in mass, mass enslavement. You know, Alexander the Great enslaved the entire city of Darien. You know, Julius Caesar marched through Gaul and sent tens of thousands of slaves back to Rome, stuff like that. It's just a norm, and, and virtually all the 
Africans who were enslaved were enslaved in wars in in Africa and then sent off into the maelstrom of the Middle Passage. You know, why did this war do the opposite? Why didn't wars don't usually end in mass emancipation? They generally <laughs> yeah. end in mass enslavement. And I wanted to know That's why. so obvious. I'm sorry to remark on that, but that, yeah, it's the exact opposite. Right, right, right. People are dying for by the hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And why didn't it? I mean, there are elements of that traditional history in the Civil War. That is, for example, when, when the Confederate Army invades Pennsylvania, they go through the streets of Gettysburg and, and pick up and enslave free blacks in, in the city and in the surrounding countryside and send them back into the South for slavery. That's normal. That's what would have, yeah. That's normal. That's the way things usually go in war. Mm -hmm. But the opposite happened in the Civil War. Instead of resulting in mass enslavement, it resulted in mass emancipation. And why did that happen? And I wasn't satisfied with the traditional answers I come out of a kind of social history background in which I take what's going on on the ground as a given, as, as sort of like you need to understand. So I've always accepted that the behavior of the slaves has a great deal to do with it. But it can't be enough because slaves don't like being slaves. They always, you know, every record we have of slavery everywhere in the world indicates that slaves don't like being slaves. Mm -hmm. Slaves in the South didn't like it either. No, but that doesn't mean they're going to get emancipated. Just not liking it and running away and taking advantage of the war was necessary, but not sufficient. And what did it take in addition to that? And it took, you know, it took a government in Washington that instructed Union soldiers when they went into the South, don't turn them away. Take them, bring them in, emancipate them. So that, that, and why did that happen? Why, you know, why reverse centuries of traditional warfare? Hmm? They could have said, "We'll just." I mean, there were there were people, you know, there were there were generals in the Union Army who were saying, you know, "Don't do that. Don't fight this war that way." But it took more than, it took more than uh, the agency of the slaves. It took the agency of the slaves. They had to run. They had to come. But it, people who were in control of the government, including Abraham Lincoln, assumed that they would. They had lived through decades of fighting over the status of fugitive slaves who ran to the north. And northerners didn't like having to return fugitive slaves. Mm -hmm. They didn't like slaves. They were obliged to, right? Well, the law says they have to after 1850. Mm -hmm. no, uh, and the, the reason that law gets passed is because Southerners were frustrated by the fact that Northerners were not cooperating in the return of fugitive slaves. And Congress passes this atrocious law in 1850, and the vast majority of Northerners in Congress vote against it. And so it passed over the objections of the majority of Northerners, and immediately there's widespread opposition to it. And, you know, there's a fugitive slave crisis, and the estimates are something like 10,000 slaves every decade are escaping to the North, and the slave Southerners are not getting them back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the experience of Northerners going into the Civil War. Slaves will run if they are given the chance, and we don't want to return them. Right? And that very easily becomes the policy of early on of the Union uh, authorities. But not returning the slaves isn't the same thing as emancipating them. It took something else. It took a an opposition to slavery in and of itself. You know, if we're not going to return them and we don't want to hold them as slaves, what are we going to do? emancipate them and they they increasingly their policies become more and more and more radical in their willingness to attack slavery and in the various ways their willingness to attack slavery and 
until they get to the single most radical policy of all, which is the 13th Amendment that just says, screw all these other policies. <laughs> this is the one that's going to do it. This is what Lincoln calls the king's cure. You know, we don't have to worry about whether the Emancipation Proclamation will not free enough slaves. We don't have to worry about a Supreme Court that's going to declare it unconstitutional. We don't have to worry about states, you know, re-enslaving people who were freed in the war. We're just going to, we're just going to wipe it out. There's so many things I want to follow up on. Sure. I'm going to give you a couple options and pick, pick any. Sure. Sure. At the very beginning of what you said, you talked about, you were, uh, uh, you studied slavery. Right. And I have not read your book, The Ruling Race, but I believe that's about the perspective of the slaveholders. Yeah. And I'm very curious about that because if you want to change them, you have to understand them. And then ultimately, I really want to talk about strategy of passing an amendment. Right. I'm not a president, but right. but we can learn from history. And also what you were just talking about, I mean, there's a whole history and the I'm curious to find how strong the parallel is of the systemic parallel that I see between slavery and pollution and, again, the systems underlying them, not comparing slavery and pollution. Uh, and then I'm also curious your thoughts on applying that history as well as your scholarship to inform current strategy. Is that something – I mean, before we recorded, you were talking about your views on on – Pollution and, and, and uh, sustainability, which you're for, the, the, the sustainability, not the pollution. Is it surprising to see your work, to, see, to have someone see your work applying directly to one of the key issues, maybe the key issue of our time? Yeah, I was surprised because that's not uh, – some people, some of my fellow historians understand what I'm up to, but – I was surprised that a lay person like yourself clearly was getting what I have been working at for the last 15 years or so to just, uh, you know, uh, figure out how did, how did they do this? Mm -hmm. And without, without distorting the history to make it serve my purposes, just look at, look at something that happened that was revolutionary, necessary, morally desirable, you know, given how how much horror and, and violence and disastrous things there are in the past. Here we have something, something that people struggled for and got done. And, you know, we all bring our politics to what we do. I try not to. I don't want to distort the history of the past if, because it's important that if it's going to influence the way I think about the world today, I'd better get it right. Okay. It's not going to do me any good to get it wrong and to skew it. You know? So there's always been that part of what I do. At least, at least there has been since I switched over to studying anti-slavery after studying slavery. The studying of slavery was more, it started out as a kind of moral passion, I suppose, and then it became a kind of curiosity. How did, how did this exist within a nation that this committed to the principles of universal freedom and uh, the principles of the Declaration of Independence? But, um, the last four books are all about this other question. How did they get this done? How impossible did it look? I mean, which – here's a question on my mind is, is which seems more impossible? The 13th Amendment in, say, 1839 when Henry Stanton first thought of it or maybe a few years later after more slave states come in or my idea for an amendment banning pollution today? Like which seems more impossible? Oh, <laughs> Given that I think a lot of people like slavery, but I don't think anyone likes pollution. I mean, they like what pollution brings, the comfort and convenience. Right. So I think there's a big advantage there. But the oil companies have a lot of money. You know, right into the 
right into the 1850s, there were plenty of uh, slaveholders in the Upper South, in the border states, who continued to talk about slavery as a necessary evil, but acknowledging the evil, you know, but couldn't bring themselves to give up the enormous economic incentive to keep them. Uh, their, their livelihoods, their worlds depended on, on the system that they bemoaned. And so, in some ways, that's, if I suppose that's what we're up against now. You know, lots, everyone will say pollution is terrible, we should clean up the environment, but are we going to give up automobiles? Are we going to give up An SUV is safer in a crash. I'm not going to sacrifice my child's safety. Of course, yes, to the environment, but right. I got to see my mom when she's sick right. and they help That's us right. a coast. That's what I mean. And, you know, in some ways, uh, it was very difficult to get this done. It was in some ways surprising. You know, Lincoln and the Republicans are only able to take control of the federal government because the slave states left. If the slave states had stayed in, they wouldn't have had the majorities to be able to do what they did. And they didn't go into the war imagining a 13th Amendment. I mean, when Henry Stanton said that, it was more likely in 39 than it became after the admission of Texas and, you know, the expansion of, continued expansion of slavery. Mm. And it, it looked like it was going to get harder and harder and harder. So nobody, nobody in the 1850s is talking that way much anymore about the possibility of a, of a, a 13th Amendment. Uh, they go into the war committed to uh, putting slavery on a course of ultimate extinction, but not not that way, not the way it turned out. The war changed everything and made it possible once you get past... You know, everything that happens up to the Emancipation Proclamation allows Americans, Northerners anyway, to accept the proclamation. They have seen by then tens of thousands of slaves coming into Union lines, offering assistance to Union troops, making Northerners realize that slaves are the only reliably loyal people in the South in such, and in such numbers and to such an extent that Americans are are Northerners anyway, are more prepared to accept an Emancipation Proclamation than they would have been when Lincoln took office. And the Emancipation Proclamation, in turn, I think, accustoms Northerners to the idea that the war, it would be a disaster for the war to end without the end of the thing that caused the war. So I think a year after the Emancipation Proclamation, a year into it, by December of 1863, Americans are prepared to accept the idea of a 13th Amendment that they wouldn't have been prepared. Because I think the Emancipation Proclamation accustoms them to the idea that slavery has to be destroyed completely. So I think the war itself you know, pushes people in a direction that they hadn't uh, been in. So as of 1859, people wouldn't talk about it because what's the point in wasting their breath on it? Yeah, it wasn't the way people imagined the abolition of slavery would happen. It had never happened that way. They imagined you could construct a series of federal policies that would kickstart the process of state-by-state -state abolition through which, by which slavery had been abolished in the northern states. Right? So, you know... The North didn't abolish slavery in the aftermath of the American Revolution. A series of states abolished slavery, and those the accumulation of those states we call the North, or the free states, right? And the model, in some ways, is the Northwest Ordinance. Congress passes this ordinance in 1787 that says there will be no slavery or... It's the wording of the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary service shall exist in these northern, in the territories, in these northwest territories. And that doesn't 
actually destroy the slavery that's already there. There isn't much of it there, but there is some of it there. But what it does is, is stop the westward migration of slaveholders into those territories. And that, that, you know, if you can look, you know, they, they go to, they get to Kentucky and, you know, Illinois and Indiana go down and, you know, they dip. Zips, and instead of, and while non-slaveholding white Southerners just cross over the Ohio River into Southern Indiana and Illinois, the slaveholders don't. They go down and around and up into Missouri, right? The Northwestern, so you have there a policy that, while it doesn't actually abolish slavery in a state, leads to the abolition of slavery in every one of those states. Ohio will abolish slavery, Michigan, Indiana. Illinois and Wisconsin, all the states carved out of that territory, abolish slavery on their own. So the anti-slavery project is designed to do that, to set up a series of policies that will eventually lead each state to abolish slavery on its own, beginning with the states closest to the north where it's weakest. That's what they're assuming going into the war, Well, not a 13th Amendment. In the background, or parallel to this, the cotton gin allows a new type of cotton to be grown profitably, yes. and the profits are immense. Yes. Global money is just flowing in. But I think you've also talked about um, the economy of the North developed, the economy of the South grew. Did I get that right? It's, yes. So it became more diversified, and, and it wasn't just Northerners profiting off of Southerners. So, but nonetheless, the South is getting very powerful. Or the slave states, slavery is getting very profitable. Yes. But yes, the cotton gin revives the fortunes of the slave economy in ways that people in the revolutionary era could not have imagined. And do you know if, did Eli Whitney intend for his cotton gin to decrease slavery? I mean, I know he, I, I was reading about him, he's a tinkerer. Yeah. But I don't know if he envisioned I it. I don't know. It just happened, that, but it did happen that way. Like, well, they, I mean, he's asked to come down to South Carolina because they know that the, you know, there are already cotton factories in the North before there's a cotton gin, mm -hmm. right? They, there's a, an explosive demand for this fiber, but they don't have a way of producing it efficiently, economically in the interior of the Southern states unless they can get something that can pull the seeds out of this fiber. And they know that, and they ask him to do that, and he does it. And it's one of many cotton gins. And it's immediately, immediately, within a year, you know. Plant more cotton. And within a year, they're growing, there's cotton gins in Natchez, Mississippi, you know, a year after the patent. And they're already doing it, you know. And then they're going to fill in that whole interior region. They're going to. You know, so, uh, and, and that's the, you know, that's the 1790s. That's after the revolution, after the Constitution. It's something that, you know, just as nobody in 1861 imagined a 13th Amendment, I don't think anyone in 1787 imagined the cotton boom. It's something that happened that revived the fortunes of the cotton, of the slave economy, and made the South you know, disproportionately influential in ways that uh, ultimately alienated more and more Northerners. So absent the cotton gin, might slavery have petered out? Or, I mean, there was like... Well, there was an... I don't know what would have happened. Or, I don't know what would have happened. It certainly would not have been as valuable. And so it might have... It might have... I mean, they could have grown other things, but... See, this is very interesting to me because if we throw technology at the environment, at sustainability... There's a lot of things that there's a pattern I call stepping on the gas, thinking it's the brake, wanting congratulations. There's a lot of technologies that we keep throwing at increasing efficiency, and it keeps augmenting the pollution. And the cotton gin is a big example. Computers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, uh, so you guys can't see this, but he was like pointing at, at at my computers and the phone and the and the and the, and the um, uh, microphone, and um. Well, what I found, technology augments the values of the people using it. And if if uh, the slave owners didn't want less labor, they wanted more profits, more cotton. And so therefore, the cotton gin in their hands increased slavery. Yes. It made slavery, the slave economy, viable, more viable than it would have been without it. And what was happening in the North that was different? 
Well, they didn't have slavery. They had already developed an economy before the revolution based on independent farms that were commercially increasingly tied to the to the growing cities to you know the the Philadelphia hinterland the farmers in the Philadelphia hinterland were sending their milk and cheese and stuff to to Philadelphia same thing in New York you know and and Boston they are they're already beginning to develop a, a dynamic interrelationship between the cities and the countryside based on family farms uh, and they come to view this as the ideal kind of society in which you know farmers basically men who own their own land are the ideal virtuous citizens they are independent and they are they are not subsistence farmers they have you know they they own their own land and they can produce surpluses that will make them prosperous without being dependent right and they idealize this society as preferable to a society with slaves. Right? So this is the crucial underlying base that makes it possible for those states to overcome whatever influence the slaveholders still had in those states. Because, you know, the slaveholders are always the wealthiest. They're always the most influential people. And it, it's not as though... They had an economic incentive to destroy slavery. They just had an economic system in which they valorized uh, free labor economy, as a free labor being basically farms with you know connections, dynamic interactions between the city and the countryside. So in that context, the moral imperative of abolishing slavery based on the principle that of of principles of the Declaration of Independence, you know, all men are created equal and they're entitled to freedom. The natural right to freedom is, you know, liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty is a natural right. It's easier to do that in a society that, like the North, because the conditions for it flourishing are there, uh, the the moral imperative is there, and the power of the slaveholders is substantially less. So they can overcome that. They can overcome the slaves. They still have to fight. You know, they don't get everything they want. The gradual abolition laws they pass are a reflection of what they could get, uh, not necessarily what they wanted, but they got it. You know, and the result was you know a, a very different kind of social organization, social and economic organization than they than the South. Whereas you know the the. The model for the cotton plantations was already there in the tobacco plantations of the 17th and 18th century in Virginia and Maryland, and that's the model that gets, you know, reproduced in the cotton economy. You know, that that average size of the plantations is the same. They're not as big as, they're not like the sugar plantations of southern Louisiana or the Caribbean. They're not like the rice plantations of Low Country, South Carolina, Georgia. It's the model is already there in the tobacco plantations, you know, and that's what migrates south with the, with the, um, you know, the, the existence of cotton, of a cotton gin that makes cotton viable. Whether they would accept it or not is another story. But was there a case to be made for the plantation owner, the cotton plantation owners, that even, I mean. Maybe that there was some benefit to them. Okay, if, if if you could show them that there's going to be a war, they would probably choose it over the war. Maybe. Some might choose still the war. I mean, if they go down fighting, they, you know, yeah, they, 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 they go down fighting. But um, I don't know. You know, they tried persuasion. <laughs> it didn't work. I mean, they actually, the, one of the very first things that William Lloyd Garrison's organization does, one of the first campaigns, when it organizes this new radical version of abolitionism in the 1833 when they set up, the first project was to flood the southern states with anti-slavery literature. And the reaction was immediate. and they suppressed it. The president of the United States, his his postmaster general, tells basically allows the postmaster in Charleston to pack up all that stuff and burn it. Right. The and in Congress, the, the 
the only big fight among the slaveholders about how to react to that is whether the the federal government should suppress the the, uh, the distribution of abolitionist literature in the South, or whether it's something only states should do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's states' rights first. <laughs> you know, but everyone agrees that this stuff has to be stopped. You know, and that was, the goal. The goal was to you know, the slaves can't read. The goal was to get the slaveholders to read this stuff and be persuaded. And the reaction was, as I say, swift and intense. We don't want to hear this. We don't want this in our states. We don't want anything like this here. And we're gonna we're gonna string you up if you come down and try to do this. Abolition couldn't even go into the South and talk about it. So, so I'm not I'm not persuaded you could ever persuade the slaveholders that way. You might you might be able to persuade them other ways. But the way Lincoln tries to do with the border states in the first year or so of the war when he says, look, you know, look what's happening. Slavery's already, you know, it's already deteriorating. You know, our, for our armies to get to the seceded states, we have to go through your states. And when our armies pass through your states, Slaves flock to our Union lines. Slavery is disappearing by mere friction and abrasion, he says. Right? So why don't you guys get on board and pass abolition statutes? Take control of the process yourself. And they wouldn't. They wouldn't. You know, the last states, you know, who that maintained, you know, their Absolute resistance to emancipation were like Kentucky, which didn't leave the Union, and Delaware. They wouldn't ratify the 13th Amendment. You know, slavery was abolished in Kentucky, even though it was a loyal state, by the passage of the 13th Amendment, because they wouldn't do it. This is incredibly nuanced. I mean, this is like... So I no one teaches this stuff. <laughs> I can see your passion. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, the point is, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't think that's the way it would ever have worked, persuading them that way. You know, you could, you know, by the end, for example, uh, in late 1865, after Lincoln has been assassinated and they, they're pushing the ratification of the 13th Amendment and they don't have quite enough states, New Jersey is waiting and not ratifying and stuff like that. Then you get the Secretary of State and the President telling South Carolina, you know, you're not coming back into the Union unless you ratify this, you know. So it it takes that kind of pressure to make a slave state. So you know I'm asking this. Yes. Well, I'm asking if if, if there's a case to be made, because I I believe that, not a case to be made, but through leadership, I think that CEOs of very polluting companies sure. and representatives of very polluting constituencies, you know, elected officials. Right. Uh, I think that, well, this whole podcast is about the Spodic method and, and how to lead them to embrace this. Right. But they'll need, you'll need some carrots and you'll need some sticks mm-hmm. in addition. It's not, it's, so not, it's not just leadership and management as well. Well, leadership that uses carrots and sticks. That's what leaders do. You know, you need a, you know, like Lyndon Johnson <laughs> taking the Southern white Southerners, the Southern Democrats, you know, by the lapel and saying, you're going to pass this, mm-hmm. you know? Does he do that? I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah you know, and, and telling and, and with a sufficient awareness of the value of popular pressure. So that this remarkable parallel between the way Lincoln responds to the more radical abolitionists during the Civil War and the way Lyndon Johnson responds to, say, Martin Luther King. They both say to the radicals, they both say exactly the same thing, right? Go out there and attack me. Go out there and put the pressure on me. Because the more pressure you put on me, the easier it is for me to turn around and put the pressure on the people I need to put the pressure on to get this done. You know? So there's a kind of... What's the difference then? Because... They, oh, they both did the same. They both did the same okay. thing. So Lyndon Johnson gets the '64 and '65 Civil Rights Act passed, then the Voting Rights Act passed that way. That's what he needed. He needed that kind of pressure. So this this is incredibly important right now because everyone, I can, I, I at least 300 million Americans are saying, oh, no, whatever. The people who are who want environmental action in the government are saying the government should act first, then I will act. What they're saying is, 
individual action doesn't matter. I'm not the one polluting. The government is. These giant corporations are. They should change. And I say, that's the end of the marathon, not the beginning. That's the beginning of a whole other marathon. But the only way you're going to get the 64, 60, the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts is someone's got to not take the bus for a year in Birmingham. Uh, I'm sorry, in um, uh, Birmingham. Bur uh, well, that was earlier. But yeah, you, that, you, the point is correct. The, the that that kind of pressure, Montgomery. Sorry, that that kind of pressure is uh, a good politician knows that that kind of pressure is useful. So if we have no politicians saying keep doing that or do more of that, they, I don't think the politicians want to do it. No. I mean, Johnson wanted he he wanted. Lincoln said the same thing to abolitionists in, in early 1862. They came and they were complaining, "You're going too slow. We want you to push faster." Blah blah blah. And he said, "Look." Go out there and attack me. Say what you need to say, you know, because the wind at my back is better than wind in my face. So the, these parallels keep growing. Am I? Every time you talk about slavery and abolition and Lincoln, I'm thinking of our situation today. Right. And I keep finding the parallels keep the the parallels don't work when slavery is bad, anti-slavery is good, and good just took over evil. And that's the end of the story. But it's much more nuanced. It's much more. And, and well, compared to today, well, it's much more complicated. Well, it's, uh, you have to understand that, that Lincoln is the head of a Republican Party that's already anti-slavery. You know, he's an anti-slavery president. The Republican Party is an anti-slavery party. So pushing them to be more radical in their convictions that they already had is crucial. So you need to have a party a political party that is already committed to that and can, you know, use the kind of pressure that comes from movements to pursue its ends. But if you don't have parties that are interested in pursuing those ends to begin with, mm -hmm. if they're all bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry or the nuclear power industry or the plastics industry, then you got to start somewhere else. Then you got to start where the abolitionists were in 1830, not where the Republicans were in 1860. Then you got to you got to start building the pressure, turn it into a political movement, turn the political movement into a major party, and then get control of the federal government. Well, can the can learning from history accelerate that process? Can having these role models? I mean, we don't want. I could easily see wars over resources. I mean, are they going to be civil wars? Are they going to be wars between us and other nations? Or, I mean, there's things can get pretty serious in the next couple of years, in the next decades, or we could avoid it. Well, you know, I, I have very strong ties, although I was born and raised in New York and I've lived in New York for 25 years. I have very strong ties to California. I went to graduate school in California. We lived in California during the pandemic for, for two years. And all people were talking about during the drafts was the water wars that were coming between Arizona and California and why, you know, how much is California going to be allowed to keep draining the Colorado River and things like that. Those, those kind of wars over environmental questions were not, they, they're right there in the headlines every day. You know, it's not, it's not the future that we're talking about. We're talking about yeah, now. Apply the same thing with the Tigris and Euphrates, and right? then upstream it's other nations. Yeah, and they can just unilaterally dam and take all the water, D A M, and take all the water. Yeah, and that's going to be a war. Yeah, and right. So us, it seems to me there's a huge lesson. There are many many lessons to learn here, and the more we get the history, the more we understand the history accurately. And the leadership and what happened, the more I hope we can prevent a repetition of, you know, do we have to go through a war? Well, the alignment of states isn't like it was. Yeah. There's no 15 contiguous red states against 45 contiguous blue states that could lead to something like that right now that's just so it's it's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine the situation we're in now devolving into civil war the way 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think the analogy is incorrect when people say we're so polarized now that it, are we heading for another civil war? It's not. It's not. Oh, I'm not way. thinking civil. I'm thinking. Um, but wars. War among nations, between nations. Hmm. I mean, look. You know. Let's see. What can the world do to stop someone like Bolsonaro from destroying the Amazon? Mm -hmm. Not my impression there was much they could do. They could say it's terrible, but we're willing. Look at the kind of pressure we're willing to put on. Russia because of its invasion of Ukraine, but we're not willing to put that kind of pressure on a country that is threatening in very real ways you know, the future of the planet. I think a major difference, a major consideration there would be how well could the North stop slavery in the South if the North still practiced slavery? Right, it wouldn't. <laughs> it would be absolutely impossible, no matter how much they still felt the same way. That's right. How can we influence people to do stuff that we are right. doing more? I think, and right. how much better how is are we life? Stop China. How much better is life? All right, let's look at the Northerners who had slaves. I mean, at, at, at one point, there were 13 slave states. Yes. So there were a lot of Northerners with slaves. And I would guess that. No, there weren't. There were some. There were some. <laughs> and who, whichever ones they were probably felt with, like, lose my slaves, that's losing an economic, that's financially neg negative for me. Yes, that's correct. But probably, I would guess that for most of them, they the economy was stronger without slavery in the North, and they even themselves eventually would probably benefit. Yes. Most of the slaves owned in the North were like domestics or local workers, so that the the economy itself did not depend on slavery, even if... Even in places like New York City, where they had the highest percentage of slaves, maybe 13 or 14 percent of the population at its height, something like that. But most of them are, you know, the economy itself did not need slavery to survive. I mean, this was, this was, I mean, the, the big, the big debate of this sort came in the 1850s when Southerners were saying, you know, cotton is king, the whole world will collapse, grass will grow in the streets of every northern city. Don't dare wait, make war on cotton, you know. And then the Northerners were saying, you know, we're not making war on cotton, we're making war on slavery. And the assumption they're going in with is slave labor is less efficient than free labor. If you abolish slavery, the South will flourish. You know, that we're still going to get our cotton. They're not going to stop growing cotton. They're going to stop growing cotton with slaves, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, the, the, the proof, you know, that the Southerners were wrong in their predictions comes in what happens after the war. You know, the North, Northern industrialization just takes off after the war. It, it does not destroy the North. It, it doesn't. You know, so that to some extent happens in the North. After the revolution, too, they abolished slavery in the northern states. New York passes its gradual abolition law in 1799. And New York City, after that, the history of New York and New York City in particular is the history of New York becoming the biggest city in the hemisphere. You know, So it's, it, that's because the economy at that point didn't depend on slavery the way the southern economy did. I want to keep going. We, we've run out of time. Oh, okay. Uh, have we talked for an hour? Uh, I'm looking, and yeah, it's not quite. I mean, we do have a few minutes, okay. but I'd love to keep this conversation going. Can we? For a few more minutes, yeah. Oh, I mean, can we do another episode? Uh, oh, another episode? Yeah. Oh, sure. Do we have? Yeah, oh, sure. So I'll, You can't stop me. From talking about <laughs> so once you get me going, it's always very hard to stop. I look for, I mean, I'm, this is to me, what I've been looking for for, I guess, since I first had that that recognition that there was some parallel between our polluting system and, and, and the system of slavery and just talking about it at all, but then seeing maybe a new amendment wouldn't work, but as far as I can tell, it's worth pursuing and this well, is the way to learn. It's a, it's the, 
I'm not one for lessons of history and parallels and things like that, but, but what we have in both cases, I suppose, is, is a constellation of entrenched, very yeah. powerful economic interests that can only be met by a, a very sustained, carefully developed political assault, you know, with practical policies that will, you know, with some, some sense of how you do this, what is necessary to take this on, things like that. And we have the one, we don't have the other. We have the, we have those entrenched interests. We don't yet have a mechanism for putting them at bay, defanging them. You described a political situation that we need. I think also the popular uprising, the popular voice. Yeah, some way to some way to tap into that and turn it into you know the what the anti-slavery movement had to do was make anti-slavery a priority that and viable, present the electorate with a viable project that they could imagine doing and make it. The priority by making it clear to them that it was in their direct interests to pursue these policies. The amendment you're talking about is the end of yeah. that process. Yeah, yeah, not, it's, it's not, not going to happen tomorrow. It's, 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 but a lot has to happen before then. A lot. To get to that point, you have to build the kind of movement that the anti-slavery people built over decades. Well, we can build on, I mean, it, that, it's not over. Yeah. And I want to close with this question for this conversation is, did you expect, are you surprised of your work being applicable or someone, I mean, I think it'll, I, I intend on using your work to help what I'm working on. Is that, is that a pleasant I'm surprised surprise that anybody else is noticing it because I've, it's been, it's been my project for, as I said, 15 or 20 years. And did you know that it would be applicable to here and now? Was in, it like in, a, the, in the broadest sense that it, it, it's ultimately the solution to slavery is going to be a political solution and it's going to take organized pressure to make the politics move in the direction you want to do it. So, you know, in my world where, you know, the world of, you know, democratic socialists, it means reviving, for example, organized labor, because organized labor will it will take organized labor, reorganized labor to create the kind of organized pressure on the political system to force it to do what it needs to do. And the same thing same thing with environmental politics or any politics. This so, will be a great place to pick up next time. And do I say a couple words on that? One of the things that allows these dominance hierarchies to to dominate is having access to a resource and being able to keep others out away from that resource and having no alternative. And in anthropological terms, uh, people had land or people had access to fishing territories. They could restrict others and then you'd get these big hierarchies. And it seems to me that's what's playing out with fossil fuels. Yeah, but there's a whole power structure that exists behind that that makes it very difficult. I mean, once you know, there's all everything is connected to everything, right? Yeah. Once you know, back up until the 1960s, the you know the rich people were paying you know 80, 90 percent of the income in taxes, right? And there was no separate capital gains tax, right? And then once once you're letting rich people keep all their money and once and then the Supreme Court comes along and says they can buy all the politicians they want. There are no restraints on what they use their money for to influence the political system. Then we're back to what the anti slavery people call the slave power, right? It's the money power. You know? The it's 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 the ability to use concentrations of economic wealth to manipulate the political system to your favor. And nothing can happen, I think, as long as that's the case. Let's pick up here next time. Okay. <laughs> Actually anything I did anything uh you want to say to listeners or No, no. I probably said too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel like just getting started. Okay. <laughs> well Jim, thank you very much. Sure. Lots of fun. 
How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.